Well, amen indeed. The Lord is great and he is worthy. I want to ask, if you will, at this time to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. If you're just joining with us, maybe for the first time this week, we've been working our way through the book of Nehemiah, and so we find ourselves today in chapter 6. We're going to cover chapter 6 and chapter 7 today. Chapter 6 and chapter 7. I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 1 through chapter 7, verse 4, and then we will continue at some point later in the service as we reflect upon the 73 verses of chapter 7. I'm going to have Keith Hammett come and read the list of names for us this morning at that point. Just kidding. Um, find ourselves as we think about the work Nehemiah is leading the people in the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. They're close to being finished, or at least at the finishing point to some degree here as we come to chapter 6. I want to pick up now and read beginning in verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning verse 1. It says, now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakkafarim in the plain of Anno. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should I stop the work while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sam Ballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to the reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say has been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away and what man such as I should go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished, on the 25th day of the month Elu, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jeho uh, Jehoahanan had taken daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Now, when the wall had been built, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother uh, Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they were still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from the, among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some of their guard posts and some of them in front of their own homes. 
The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now that as we consider this chapter, these two chapters in Nehemiah, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us insight, that you would help us understand how as your people we are called to persevere in your grace. So Lord, we ask now that you give us insight and understanding. Teach us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we've established this truth in recent weeks that the Christian life is a life that is often marked by adversity and challenge and difficulty. Nehemiah has experienced that in many different ways. We understand that Nehemiah and the people have had this rebuild project going on and amidst all of this work that they were called to, there was a lot of opposition that had pushed against them. As Christians in this world today, we know that there are many things, numerous things that will be opportunities for disappointment, discouragement, distraction in the work and the purpose for which God has called us as his people. So the question is, how do we stay committed to Christ? How do we remain faithful to, to the Lord and his purposes when life is difficult? How do you stay committed to your responsibilities? Just think about that in the context in which we all live. How do you, how do you remain faithful? How do you remain a good steward, responsible to the Lord in your school, at work, in your marriage, in singleness, as a parent, to the church, as a disciple, as a disciple maker, on and on we can go. I mean, there's so many contexts in which we can think about our lives and how do we maintain the course, the purposes in which God has given us because at every moment there's opportunity for distraction, for discouragement, for trial, for challenge, people oppose, push back. As a Christian, we know that our lives, our lives are to be marked by many different things, but two critical things, two essential things that ought to characterize the life of the believer are endurance and perseverance. Endurance and perseverance, both are essential to our faith. Now there's a difference between the two. Endurance is more of an attitude of resolve to stand firm without giving way to pressure. We're enduring something. And endurance is admirable. It's even commendable in the Bible. It's something we're called to do, to, to endure. But we're also called to persevere. Perseverance is taking more of an active role in fulfilling your responsibility as a Christian in this world amidst challenges and trials so that you remain faithful to your calling in the Lord. The great preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, there is nothing which so certifies the genuineness of a man's faith as his patience and his patient endurance, his keeping on steadily in spite of everything. It's what Lloyd-Jones says there, the keep, keeping on steadily in spite of everything that I want us to think about today from this text. This, this idea of persevering, the keeping on steadily, even as things come our way and challenges occur. How do we keep going in the Lord? How do we do that? Well, I think Nehemiah demonstrates that for us in, in multiple ways. We see here how the Lord, through Nehemiah's able leadership, led the people to persevere amidst so many difficulties, challenges from the outside, challenges from the inside. How they maintained this constant course through persevering in the grace of God to rebuild and resettle a city. So as we think about this text and we think about this calling, as we think about this idea of perseverance, perseverance is kind of this main point that we're thinking about this morning. Perseverance is a vital quality that must characterize believers as we seek to live out God's purposes in this world. 
And here in chapter six and seven, what we're going to find are five encouragements, at least five encouragements from this text that will help us be encouraged in our own persevering today. Five encouragements I want us to walk through from chapter six and chapter seven as we think about the call to persevere in this world. Encouragement number one. One of the things that we're called to from Nehemiah here is this, that we are to be undeterred in our estimation of God's work. Be undeterred in your estimation of God's work. I want you to notice the first three verses. Here as the wall nears completion, it's pretty much completed at this point, the surrounding opposition that we've heard from before, here they come again. One more time, they try to cause trouble for Nehemiah. Sanballat and Tobiah, you'd think that by now that they would have given up. The Lord had already frustrated their plans once, but yet here they are again at the completion of the wall, trying to stir up trouble for Nehemiah yet again. So what, what do they do? They invite him to a meeting. And knowing their ultimate motive, he sends word back to them in verse three. So verses one and two, they conspire, they call Nehemiah to a meeting, let's meet together. But notice the, the caveat there at the end of verse two, but they intended to do me harm. Nehemiah's reflecting upon this. He knows their ulterior motive. He knows that they are, they are conspiring against him. And so in verse three, he sends messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should I stop this work and come down to you? Nehemiah's calling and his commitment to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem are described here as a great work. This work was his driving, compelling priority. And no matter how loud or persistent the opposition became, Nehemiah remained steadfast to the work. Again, he describes this work in Jerusalem there in verse three as a great work. Now, from the eyes of the world, it wasn't all that great. From Sanballat and Tobiah's position, the work that he was doing was a threat. It wasn't a great work at all from their perspective. But yet that's how Nehemiah describes it. It was a great work, not because of how the world defined it, but because God's name was attached to it. That's why it was great. You just remember, if you, if, you, if you go back and read the first five chapters, especially in chapter one, Nehemiah had a pretty sweet gig there in Persia, didn't he? Like he was among the upper escalon of, of, of Persian society. He was the cupbearer of the king, which was a pretty high-level privileged position in the, in, the, in the court, in the king's court. And he left all of that, that from the world's perspective, that was a great work serving with the king of the known world at that time, that the ruler, the, the most powerful man on the planet, Nehemiah was an assistant to as a cupbearer. Now that, from the world's perspective, would be great. But Nehemiah leaves that behind in order to go back to Jerusalem to invest himself in this work of rebuilding the walls. And he says that is a great work. Friends, it's, a, I think, an important lesson for us just to be reminded that the world will never approve of the work we do, nor will it ever affirm what we do as great. If you as a Christian are looking for the affirmation of the world in what you do as a Christian, you're fooling yourself. It's not going to affirm you, quite the contrary. But everything we do in the service of the Lord is a great work because he, friends, is a great God. No matter how others perceive what you do as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who loves the Lord and, and is pouring your heart and your life into the things that God has called you to do, no matter how others may perceive that, it is a great work because he is a great, work, great God. 
The work we do is not valued on what we do, but on who we do it for. Think about your own place within the kingdom of God. We, we all have different experiences and, and we're at different places. We have various ministries personally and in a community context. Some of you are school teachers. Some of you are electrical or mechanical engineers. Some of you fly things that these mechanical and electrical engineers put together. Others are medical professionals. Some of you are stay-at-home moms. Others are single students. Others are involved in various trades and on and on we can go. So you get, you, just from a professional perspective, the things you do vary. And you can find your identity in that, if you're not careful, and understand that, that that is the work that I'm doing in this world. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you do, those things and, and endless other options, as a Christian, you are still called to be part of a great work as a disciple and a disciple maker. And so no matter what office you go to or hallway that you walk down, or building site that you may tend to, you as a believer are called to engage in a great work just as a, an ambassador of Jesus. So it doesn't matter, friends, what your title in this world is. As a disciple of Jesus, you are part of a great movement and great work as you go about serving him. Therefore, if we are going to persevere in doing the Lord's work, we need to be driven by the fact that he is a great God and the calling that we have as disciples is a great work, no matter where we may be placed within that work. Some of us serve in that work full-time, others, uh, others don't. They're, 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 you, you have a lot on your plate, but yet as Christians, we are called to engage in this work together and it is a great work. So that's the point. You, you see here in Nehemiah, he's, he's being distracted or intimidated from this out external opposition. And Nehemiah is, is driven, he's being driven by his calling and his commitment to the work God has given him. He says, I don't have time for you because the work I'm doing takes priority. It's a great work. Friends, don't let the noise of this world distract you or downplay the significance of what you're doing in God's kingdom. Whether you're spending most of your day pouring into young children or striving to be Christ-like in your engagement in a conference room, you are part of a great work because you belong to a great kingdom ruled by a great king. Remember that. The world will not tell you that. In fact, it will tell you otherwise. So you see, first of all, that Nehemiah is undeterred in his estimation of God's work. He, under, he defines, he describes it as being great. That's the vision in which he's captivated by. And everything in this world will seek to try to distract you away from that. Second encouragement we find to perseverance here is this, that we're called to be resolved to stand against God's enemies. I don't wanna spend a lot of time here because we've talked a lot about that as a whole sermon. Uh, from a few chapters back. But just notice that the, the opposition is relentless, isn't it? Just keeps coming back. Fight off the opposition, pray against the opposition, Lord frustrates the opposition's plans, they rebuild the walls, you think all is well, but not so fast. Here they are again. Verses two and three, we see how the surrounding opposition, Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem, they invite Nehemiah to a meeting, a summit, and have this great meeting. And in verse four, we see that they made this request, not just once, but four times. And Nehemiah sends the same response each time. But on the fifth time, in verse five, Sam Ballot sends, sends something different. This now, he sends an open letter an open letter which was to be read publicly as an attempt to try to discredit his leadership and, and kind of pit the people against him and try to cause some trouble for him. 
Basically, this letter said that Nehemiah was scheming to rebel against the king and to lead Judah out of Persia's, Persia's domain. And Nehemiah was going to establish himself as king and lead Judah out of this of this uh, earthly kingdom. But Nehemiah sees the tactic and he immediately responds to this falsehood and he expresses, if you read on down to verse nine, the real reason for the lie that was written against him in the letter. And he says, for they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands, the Jews, would drop from the work and it wouldn't be done, the walls wouldn't be completed, the, the work Nehemiah was leading would, would fail. So he's trying to pit the people against Nehemiah and, and in this open letter that was to be read for all the people to hear. And Nehemiah responds. He denies the accusations, the false accusations against him. Now, notice how he responds, actually. There's, there's kind of three stages to his response. One, he, he, he speaks to it. He acknowledges what they have done and he calls it out for what it is. This is wrong. It's a lie. It's a false accusation. It's not true. But then he prays. And then he continues working. I think it's a great picture here of, of how we as God's people can respond to the opposition in this world. You see, the wall here is, is virtually complete. And there still remains this opposition, this intimidation, this, the schemes that are coming against the work. And Nehemiah's response is one of dealing with the opposition, but he continues to cling to the Lord in prayer and he keeps focused on the work he'd been called to. God's purposes in the world will always be opposed. Today, as we seek to fulfill our mission all these years later, we're not, again, we're not building walls, we're not repopulating a city per se. But as we seek to carry out the purposes of God in this world, we know that there will always be opposition to our efforts. The world will do everything in its power to try to, 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 to quieten us, to shut us down. And they'll do everything possible to do it. We'll be misrepresented will be mischaracterized, and, and those things are true because we're misunderstood, ultimately because they don't understand who God is. And when possible and appropriate, we must defend ourselves. We must speak to those things, but those things must not become that which overwhelms us. It, the, the, the voice of the enemy, the... the the noise, the distraction, the intimidation of the opposition shouldn't be something that we only focus on. But we address it, but we continue in what the Lord's called us to. Let's not get distracted from, from the mission. One of the things that you think about the work here, I said earlier that um, the challenges, the trials that, that Nehemiah and the people of God there in Jerusalem were facing were a lot of external threats, but they, we just saw a week or so ago uh, of the internal struggle that they had. You had the wealthy kind of oppressing the, the, the poor. And so they had some internal conflicts as well. But one of the things I think we need to keep in mind when we think about the enemy and the opposition against the church is one of the things that we will do, we will find is yet yeah, very true that we have an external opposition that's coming against us. But one of the things I'm seeing today, and it just grieves me is how the enemy will often work today by turning Christians against each other. Whether it's political issues or cultural issues, any number of issues, what I've seen over the last decade is just this, this sad dividing line that's happened among people I respect, that I now struggle to respect. And it's not, as, not enough that we haven't an opposition out there, now the enemy does all that he can to try to stir up opposition from within. So be mindful, brothers and sisters, that the enemy is not always a secular voice crying foul. 
that oftentimes, if possible, the enemy will come from within the church and will seek to pit Christians against each other, believing the same gospel, may coming to different conclusions on other things, but they believe the same gospel. And now we're so, so we can't even have a conversation together. Two errors we must avoid. One, ignoring the enemy. Nehemiah doesn't ignore sin ballot until he doesn't just turn a blind eye. But number two, giving too much focus to the enemy. Nehemiah doesn't stop the work indefinitely to try to get rid of Sambal and Tobiah. No, he deals with them, but he continues on. Brothers and sisters, the best way that we can stand against our opposition is to keep our eyes on Jesus and keep serving him. Number three, a third encouragement we see is that we're to be grounded in our knowledge of God's word. You get to verse 10, Nehemiah's difficulties don't end in verse nine. In verse 10, he receives an invitation from a prophet named Shemaiah to visit him at his house, but this prophet had sold out to the opposition and now uses his position to try to lure Nehemiah in and undermine him in some way. So during his visit, Nehemiah goes to visit this prophet and Shemaiah tells him that there were some people. So he goes to, to the prophet's house, Nehemiah does, and when he gets there, the prophet tells Nehemiah, by the way, there's people that are going to come kill you and I think they're coming tonight, so let's just go to the temple and go inside the temple so that you can be protected from the enemy that's coming to kill you. And Nehemiah sniffs that out real quick. You know why? Not because he was given a secret letter that, that, that warned him about this plot, not because he picked it up online somewhere. The reason Nehemiah knew this was false was because he was a man who read his Bible. Because Nehemiah understood that he, even as governor of Judah, was not permitted by the law of God to go into the temple. He's forbidden to do that. That's why he says in verse 11, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? And then he says, I will not go. He knew from texts like Numbers 18 verse seven that he had no right to enter the temple because he wasn't a priest. In fact, we find examples in the Old Testament. You can go to 2 Chronicles chapter 26 verse 16 where King Uzziah did exactly what Nehemiah was tempted to do King Uzziah went into the temple unlawfully, and guess what happened to him? He became a leper until his death. He was fortunate because others that would do that would die. So Nehemiah knew that according to the scripture, he had no right to be in the temple or severe consequences would incur if he did. So he turns that offer down. But I think it's, we, if you just run right past that, we have to see that the thing that was driving Nehemiah was, yes, his, his walk with the Lord through prayer, but he was a man of the word. It was the Bible that was informing his practice. And even in a simple response to a prophet who had sold out to the opposition, Nehemiah is able to say no because he knew what the Bible said. You see the difference between Nehemiah and this prophet, here's this prophet that valued money more than scripture, but Nehemiah valued God's word more than he did safety or comfort or protection. It teaches us that if we're going to persevere as God's people, then we must be a people who are guided by the truth of God's word, not by any sense of comfort, safety, or wealth. Nehemiah was able to discern the will of God because he knew the word of God. And that, friends, if you don't hear me say anything else the rest of this day, hear that. He was able to understand the will of God because he knew the word of God. I hear a lot of people, even today, still talk about, I just wish I knew God's will for my life. What's right here in the Bible? It's right here in the Bible. God's revealed everything that you and I need for life and godliness. 
He said, no, I need to know if I need to take this job or that job. Well, again, he's given you everything you need to make wise decisions. If you're going to follow the will of God, you must be a person that immerses yourself in the word of God. I think Nehemiah shows us the example here that you can be assured that anything that goes against the Bible is not of God. Nehemiah knew that he wasn't going to enter the temple because he knew what the Bible said, and therefore he said, no, I'm not doing that. Fourth encouragement. Be committed in your dependence upon God's help. Verse 15, look at verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Pretty impressive. If you were to kind of compare our calendar to the Hebrew calendar, they started the work about August, they ended it about October. And friends, this project was no small, this was not just a 10-foot wall that they needed to tend to. This was a wall around a city. The city of Jerusalem was no small undertaking. And when you consider all the challenges that they faced along the way, Sanballat and Tobiah, the opposition that kept threatening them and intimidating them, and the famine on top of that, and the, the internal conflicts that they were having, the fact that they finished this wall in 52 days was a huge success. But what we find is that the reason the wall was able to be finished in 52 days, the reason this great work that Nehemiah was committed to was, was able to be finished in such a speedy time is explained clearly for us in verse 16. Look at verse 16. When all of our enemies heard of it, the fact that they built the wall in 52 days, all the nations around us were afraid. Think of the irony here. The nations were trying to make Nehemiah and the people afraid, and now they get word, the nations, these same people, get word that the people of God built the, the walls in 52 days, and now they're afraid. Why? Keep reading. All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This was not something that Nehemiah and the Jews did on their own. You see, the, the nations even perceived that this work was finished with the help of God. I think what we need to keep in mind, friends, is that as you read through the book of Nehemiah, this has been a continual theme throughout. The Nehemiah's perspective, and now you even see the nations affirming this, but this, this continual theme of God's presence and God's provision from beginning to end. All the way back in chapter 2, verse 8, before Nehemiah even left Persia to go to Jerusalem, he understood that the Lord had answered his prayer to go and get permission by the king, verse 8, Chapter two, for the good hand of my God was upon me, he says. Then he gets to Jerusalem and surveys the city in chapter two, verse 12, he's talking about this work that he's about to engage in because it's God who had put it in his heart. In chapter two, verse 20, he's encouraging the people to get to work and he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. In chapter 4, verse 15, we're told that it's God who frustrated the plans of the enemies and held them at bay so that people could continue to work. In chapter 4, verse 20, we're told that Nehemiah says, even if, if, if they are to come against us and you hear the trumpet, and you're to come, come and join me here where you hear the trumpet call because God will fight for us. And now in chapter 6, verse 16, we see how even the enemies are looking at the completed wall and saying, they did this with the help of their God. From beginning to end, this work in Jerusalem was a work that God had been right in the midst of. Nehemiah's heart and his hands were engaged in the work, but the work would not be accomplished apart from the help of God. There are a lot of things in this world, brothers and sisters, we can do that are impressive. That can be explained away in human terms, in human resources. There are a lot of things that you and I can take part in that 
can be described by ordinary human effort. I was just reading an article last night or this morning about the stadium where the Super Bowl is taking place tonight. Just the, the marvelous engineering that went into that and the, the scope of that stadium and how great it was. What was not in that article was we built this with the help of our God. It, it's a great structure that pagans can build. There are a lot of things that we can do in this world that are impressive, but can be explained by ordinary human efforts. Anyone with financial means and skill can pull off a lot. But as God's people, as the church, it should be our desire not to be involved in a work where people would look at us and say, well, anyone can do that. No, we wanna be part of a work when people look at us, they say, God must be with those people. God must be with them. I love what David Platt says. He says, I wanna be part of something that can only be explained by the hand of God. That should be our desire here at Redeeming Grace, that we wanna be part of something that can only be explained because the hand of God is upon the people of God in this place. Friend, is that your desire? Is that your desire? that you want to be part of something that can only be explained because of the power and provision of God? Or, or are you simply content to settle for less? Don't settle for a life that can be lived out in worldly definitions and explanations. Friends, give yourself to things that lead you to trust God and to depend upon the Lord, his hand and his help to see it through. The nature of our work as Christians, just the nature of the work that we're part of, listen, it requires God's help. You and I can save no one, zero. A person's conversion is not in your ability to accomplish. You and I cannot sanctify grow other people. We can be influencers. We can be tools that God uses. We should be. We should be mouthpieces for the gospel that the, God, that the Lord uses that word to convert. We should be voices speaking truth into each other's lives that God uses to grow. It's God, though, who gives the growth. So we can strategize, but we need God's wisdom. We can proclaim the gospel, but it's God who saves. We can lead people in the truth, but it's God who sanctifies and grows. Listen, let's not settle for what man can do. Let's give ourselves to things that when people look at us, they say, the Lord must be with them. And let's not settle for anything less. Be committed in your dependence upon God's help because if you're going to persevere, you're going to need it. Number five, and finally, we should be involved in the community of God's people. If you look at chapter seven, after the walls are built, Nehemiah takes time to organize the people. He realizes, and you, you see it by, by verse four of chapter seven, that while the city of Jerusalem is now protected by a wall, talked about the importance of those walls in ancient times and how it was really more important even than an army. Now Jerusalem's wall was reestablished. Their, 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 their protection was, was strengthened. He realizes that while this wall is there, there's very few people living inside the wall in the city. And so he begins by assigning people to some key leadership roles. You see that in verse two with, Hanani and Hananiah, Hanani, his brother, he, he gives to some leadership roles and Hananiah, why? Because they were more faithful and God-fearing than many. So he understood that, that their character mattered. So he puts leaders in place. He, he, puts, he puts key people in, in leadership roles there within the city. You see from verse seven, following, it's that lengthy list from verse five all the way down to verse 73, just a lengthy list of names and numbers. 
If you look at Ezra chapter two, it's basically the same list that you find in Ezra chapter two. And this was a list used to identify those who had returned from the exile so that they could organize efforts to repopulate the province of Judah, including the city of Jerusalem. People in Jerusalem and throughout the towns of Judah, they were resettling the area. And not only were they just returning to now a city in an area that kind of have some strength in it, they were returning to be the people of God. And that's something that, that when you read this list of names that we find glimpses of, it wasn't just, let's, get, let's just find whoever we can and put in the city. They had to be the right people for the right roles. They had to be the right people to live in the city because they were to be the holy people of God, set apart for the worship of God in the covenant community of God. So Nehemiah was sensitive to the long-term priority of Jerusalem being reestablished, repopulated, but for a purpose. And that purpose was so that they could live out their lives as God's covenant people in right relationship to him. What you actually find here is Nehemiah is not just doing a census. He is taking role of who the exiles were in return and repopulating the area, putting key people in key roles and repopulating the area so that they could be marked off as God's covenant people. He rightly understood that not only was he rebuilding a city, he was seeking to help renew a people. And as such, they needed to be the right people, a holy people. You see it again in verses 61 through 65 where there are some who came and they weren't listed. So they were kept out. Friends, if we are going to persevere in this great work that God has given us, we need to be rightly identified with God's people. Now, yes, our situation today in 2022 is drastically different from what we find here in Nehemiah chapter seven. They were under the old covenant, we're under the new covenant. The gospel now has gone to the ends of the earth. So not only do you have Jews, you have Gentiles. Jesus has come and fulfilled the Old Testament promises, accomplished the redemptive work of God so that there is one sacrifice now for all who would trust in him. And so the need of a temple and a tabernacle is no more because we have that in Christ. Things have changed. Who we are and how we are structured will look different today than it did in the, the time of the Old Testament because of the change of the covenants. But listen, the, the, the big idea is still the same. We are called as God's people to be set apart as his people in this dark world to be a holy people, a people who love him and worship him and serve his purposes in this world. So friends, if we're gonna persevere in this work, we're gonna do so understanding our relationship to the people of God and to the Lord as his people. We're not a bunch of independent individuals just out there doing our own thing in the name of Jesus. We are called to be part of a greater covenant family and community so that we can be established in this world, marked off as his people to serve his purposes for his glory. What are the ways that, that we can make sure this happens? There's two things I wanna just speak to. Two things I want to, to speak to as we think about being set apart, marked off in this world as God's people. Number one, the way that you do that is first of all, be rightly related to Christ through the gospel. You think about salvation. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to be numbered among the people of God, even in Nehemiah's day, then you would need to separate yourself from the nations and become part of the Jewish community in essence, following covenant regulations that we find in the old covenant. But when Jesus came, he came and fulfilled the demands of the old covenant. He brought a new covenant. In Hebrews chapter eight, we read this, the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter eight, verse six, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent 
than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In verse 13, he says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already, is ready to vanish away. And then the writer of Hebrews continues on explaining how Jesus has now become our great high priest and the one who rightly relates us to God in this new covenant. And so brothers and sisters, cling to that as your hope. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're thinking, well, that, I'm not a Christian, so I'm not part of God's people. And maybe you're even wondering, how do I become part of God's people? Well, it's not by obeying a bunch of commands and rules. The way that you become rightly identified with the people of God is by trusting in Jesus who came to fulfill the demands of the old covenant and establish a new people under the new covenant as he dies on a cross in the place of sinners, shedding his blood so that your sins could be forgiven and his righteousness would clothe you so that even though you're a lawbreaker in the eyes of God, you would be seen as righteous and cleansed forever because of Jesus and his finished work. If you would hope in that, friend, you will be rightly identified with the people of God. We would love nothing more than to talk with you further about what that means and how, that, how, that, how, we, how we can understand that together. So you're rightly identified with the people of God through the gospel. And then number two, I want you to think about the importance of the church. One of the ways that you can be marked off in the world today is by being united to a local church. It's exactly one of the ways that we carry out God's purposes in the world is by identifying with a local community of believers. And we would even go as far as to say through formal church membership. The local church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. It's an outpost of the bigger universal church in a local community where local Christians have covenant responsibilities to one another where we agree that we believe the same thing and now we are agreeing to hold each other accountable in relationship to each other as we live out all of these one another passages in the Bible. And so we join ourselves with a local body of believers as a way to picture our membership to the larger body of believers. So one of the things that we would even say here at Redeeming Grace is that church membership is a way for us, not the way, but a way for us to identify who's in and who's out. It's a way that we can commit to each other in an accountable, formal way so that we can continue to join together in the great work God has given us in our day and time. So friend, if you're looking for a place to be numbered with a group of gospel-loving, great commission-focused people, imperfect as we are, this is a great place to do that. See, Nehemiah shows us that this rebuilding project was not ultimately about walls. It was ultimately about a people who would live within those walls and live out their lives together in relationship to one another and in their relationship to the Lord, carrying out his purposes in their day and in their time. Friends, as Christians, we are called to be the people of God, carrying out the purposes of God in this community and to the ends of the earth. That's what we're called to do. And it's a great work because it, it's done in the name of a great God. It's a great work to be part of, but we know that it's a challenging work. It requires this, this spirit of perseverance. It involves us committing ourselves, not just as a passive bystander, but as someone who's actively engaged in fulfilling the mission and purposes of God in our personal lives and in our corporate 
lives. As we persevere, it's going to require us to value the great work that the Lord's called us to. It's going to, call, it's going to require us to stand firm against the opposition, but not lose perspective of the Lord in the midst of that. It's going to require us to be grounded in God's word so that we know what to say yes to and no to. It's going to require us to depend upon the Lord's hand to know that, hey, we're part of something we can't do on our own. And it's going, to need, it's going to require us to identify with the Lord's people, to understand that we're part of a greater body than just ourselves. Friend, there's lots that will try and distract and discourage you. But in the midst of that, you must, by the grace of God, keep trusting him and keep serving him. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, by God's grace, let us be known as a people who keep on steadily in spite of everything. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about the calling you've given us as your people, Lord, we have a great responsibility in this world. Maybe we don't realize that. Maybe we've, we've come in here this room, in, into this place today and we're just glad we made it. Life is busy. Family matters to tend to. Work responsibilities that are overwhelming. We're just happy that we made it on a Sunday. We, we came to church. But Father, I pray that, that our, our mind and our vision of the Christian life would be much more than that. That we would understand that we are part of this community of believers that have been given a great responsibility in this world. And that that great responsibility, that that great work to which you've called us all to engage in in some way would be the, the driving motivation of our hearts and that we would not settle for anything less. Father, would you help us in this work? Lord, we know that that there's everything in the world that comes against us in a given day to try to, to distract us and keep us from working in your name. Lord, help us. Help us to persevere, Lord. Help us to persevere, not just to get by, but to persevere actively engaged in the responsibilities and work in which you've given us as your people. Lord, help us to keep on steadily in the grace of God, for the glory of God, in spite of everything that we may face in this world, that your name would be praised. So Lord, would you let your word resonate in our hearts today? And would you lead us in obedience and in perseverance, not for our sake, but for your name, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.